2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact
4: us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.
5: Friday morning, the 3rd of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Politicians in the North meet again in the hope of reaching an agreement which will restore government three years on since Sinn Féin collapsed the Assembly due to a range of issues.
6: Things like Gay, uh, Frank Cousinehan and Nawa, the the lethal decision, despicable decision, the RHI were something in the region of half a billion pounds ran the risk of being squandered and left a process wide open to corruption all of these things are hugely concerning for us in Sinn Féin and you can see by the way the debate on the RHI has continued over the course of recent times there is a massive public outcry there may not be a massive public private outcry within the ranks of the DUP but as I told Arlene the, the DUP in this issue are living in a bubble They don't seem to understand how serious the general public, the voters of all the other parties in the Assembly uh, make of this ridiculous situation which uh, bears full responsibility for the ministers from the DEP who were effectively in charge.
5: The late Martin McGuinness three years on Sinn Féin says a deal could be reached as early as today to return to the status quo.
6: There will be No return to the status quo, except on terms that are acceptable to Sinn Féin. The situation uh, that we've been dealing with in the course of recent years is unacceptable. I have now called a halt to DEP arrogance. And if the DEP think, in the aftermath of an election, that they're going to step back into ministerial positions, short of resolving the critical issues some of which I have identified during the course of this conversation, and they're living in a fool's paradise.
5: That's the late Martin McGuinness. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin MEP, is on uh, the line. And a very good morning to you, Matt Carthy, and uh, thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Sinn Féin contends that it's possible to strike a deal today. Does that mean that those issues have been resolved?
3: Well, good morning, Michael, and Happy New Year to all your listeners. Um, it's not a matter of all the issues being resolved at this point, but the framework for resolving them is certainly there. It was there um, and has been there from almost the immediacy after Martin McGuinness, as you say, took that um, very bold decision and it wasn't an easy decision to make um, in, in relation to the Assembly. The truth of the matter is, and just to remind listeners again, because sometimes in the ferocity of political debates, these things can get lost, the institutions um, as established um, towards the end of 2016 simply weren't working and um, the, they weren't delivering for the people in the north. There were a um, number of schemes, particularly the RHI scheme that were facilitating I would contend corruption on a grand scale. There was a major lack of respect, and um, particularly for those people in the north who are Irish citizens and consider that um, from the DUP and there were a number of particularly outstanding agreements that had previously been reached on issues like the Irish language, mm-hmm. like the um, legacy issues, like um, some in-capital projects that hadn't actually been subsequently um, achieved. And that had led to um, uh, um, to a, a removal of... Public confidence in the in the institutions themselves, and that okay.
5: was clearly untenable. So, pardon the, the pun, but the renewable heat incentive, the RHI scandal, was put on the back burner to some degree to allow for a public inquiry to be held. Uh, but Martin McGuinness had insisted when he collapsed the assembly that Arlene Foster would step it aside uh, whilst that process was underway. She didn't, of course. Uh, is her position secure? If the other uh, issues are resolved,
3: well, whether Arlene or the UP liked it or not, essentially she did step aside um, from the position of First Minister for the, um, the period since. Because perhaps uh, so,
5: but, but uh, ra- ran Northern Ireland from Westminster.
3: Well, um, I suppose Miss ran is probably a, a better term to, to use. But um, essentially, my understanding is that the RHI inquiry has completed its work Mm. and it's a matter of the publication. And I suppose, again, public opinion and the DUP and the wider political situation will dictate what Arlene Foster's...
5: Okay, but that that publication is imminent, isn't it? That's my understanding, yes. Uh, And Sinn Féin is about to do a deal which will see Arlene Foster restored as First Minister.
3: Well, that remains to be seen in terms of the outworkings of all of that, and it's I, I suppose it's periphery at this stage to um, to talk about the individuals that will take on the positions within the institutions. What, in fame want to see at this point is the institutions restored on a basis that ensures that the mismanagement that we've seen of schemes like the RHI can't happen again. And that the disrespect that has been shown to one side of the community, predominantly by the DUP, isn't allowed to happen again. And the way in which you do that is by ensuring that those outstanding agreements Mm. that I talked about are implemented Mm. and that protections are put in place. So, for example, the petition of concern that was put in place in the Good Friday Agreement in order to protect minority rights, isn't actually allowed to be used to deny minority rights, which is, of course, what the DUP had been using it for. And so let's see what happens over the next 24 hours, but as you indicated...
5: Is there a risk, though, that Sinn Féin is about to betray Martin McGuinness's legacy, his wishes? He said that the First Minister, in his resignation speech in Stormont, he said that the First Minister has refused to stand aside without prejudice pending a preliminary report from an investigation. That position is not credible or tenable. Now it seems as though she's going to be reinstated before the report has been published.
3: No, um, there's absolutely no chance whatsoever that Sinn Féin would um, um do anything to besmirch Martin McGuinness's legacy we still miss him dearly and um, the the that the spirit and the um, political inclinations that guided Martin McGuinness throughout his own political life continue to guide the Sinn Fein negotiating team and I've been speaking to them on several occasions
5: mm, if if Arlene Foster is reinstated would that not besmirch Martin McGuinness's legacy
3: I'm not if it's if the um, substance of the deal that is reached, and I hope that a deal will be reached, um, lives up to the criteria that Martin McGuinness had said, and I understand why. Um, people would have focused on his remarks with relation to um, Arlene Foster.
5: Because it was, um, the, an issue, it, it was the issue that triggered it was the straw, if you like, that broke the camel's back, uh, but it the was order. the issue that was to the forefront uh, of uh, the dispute that led to the collapse of the uh, Assembly uh, and it, it seems now as though it's been parked.
3: No, um, what Martin McGuinness had said um, and he outlined and you played the recording there which I think was very helpful, all a, a series of issues that had um, ensured that the public had lost confidence in the institutions themselves and had left Martin with no other choice in his view but to remove um, and withdraw Sinn Féin from those institutions. What he said in relation to Arlene Foster was that it would not be tenable in his view for Arlene Foster to remain as First Minister while the RHI inquiry was being undertaken. That inquiry... And the report, as we understand it, has essentially been completed now and we're now waiting for the publication of the, of the report. And as I say, political decisions will need to be made in the aftermath of the publication. But what we want to ensure is that regardless of who the personalities are mm. in any of the positions, that uh, disregard um, and the mismanagement that we've seen previously isn't allowed to, um, to ever happen again. And in order for that to occur, we need to make sure that the legal and political framework for the institutions... Um, are um, brought back to the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement and the detail of the the subsequent agreements that have yet been unfulfilled. So my understanding is that there will be a paper presented to the political parties um, probably today. um, And our hope is that that um, paper will include the necessary detail on all of those range of issues that remained outstanding in order to ensure the institutions be restored. And let's remember, an, an agreement has previously been reached in, uh, in February of 2018 that the uh, mm-hmm. DUP then subsequently failed to sell to it own members and supporters within loyalism and reneged
5: on that deal. So, yeah. the in, in collusion with the British government to yeah. according to Martin Absolutely. McGuinness when it came to legacy issues you mentioned legacy issues uh, and it, it seems as though the DUP will get uh, funding for the A5 motorway uh, but uh, what about legacy issues? Will they be dealt with to what would have been the satisfaction of Martin McGuinness? Let's just take a, a short uh, listen to what he had to say about
6: what it. One of the most preposterous Situations that I envisaged in the course of recent times was the refusal of both the British Government and the D E P to grant the funds on request from the Lord Chief Justice on outstanding uh, inquests. Total failure on dealing with the legacy issue aspect of the Fresh Start Agreement and I have told both the D E P and the British Government that I believe that both of them have colluded to frustrate a way forward in relation to that.
5: Matt Carthy, is it possible for Sinn Féin uh, to agree to restore the institutions if the legacy issues are not dealt with and funding isn't put in place uh, in line with uh, what Martin McGuinness was saying there?
3: Well, I'm not going to preempt what um, the negotiators are going to agree at um, Stormont, but you're correct to say that one of the issues that Sinn Féin absolutely want to be resolved is the issue of legacy. And I would hope that the Irish government will be on the same page as that, because we know in this state that quite regularly um, Republican representatives are challenged in relation to a particular legacy issue or another, depending on what the political capital that Mm. generally speaking our political opponents can draw from that yet at the same time Sinn Féin and Republicans have been the only people that have been categorical in saying we want a full truth in process to allow um, families of all of those who lost loved ones um, during the conflict for which um, answers remain uh, remain outstanding for the measures to be put in place for those to get those, uh, those answers. It is ironic that in many respects it is those that will challenge Republicans on legacy issues that are actually the same people that are blocking. Okay, so,
5: so let's so sounds, sounds to some degree as though Sinn Féin is willing to compromise and all of those issues three years ago that left Northern Ireland without government which left people so angry that they gave you an earful at uh, the doorsteps over the course of uh, the election campaign campaign uh, before Christmas. Now it seems as though same-sex marriage and abortion will be introduced because of uh, the will of Westminster. It seems as though Sinn Féin may be willing to accept Arlene Foster uh, to be reinstated as First Minister, uh, as though it's willing to compromise on some of those legacy issues and also to compromise on the Irish Language Act and that it would become a language act rather than a standalone Irish language act.
3: Well, it should come as no surprise to you, Michael, or any of your listeners, that Sinn Féin is willing to compromise because we have been the party that have been always willing to stretch ourselves in order to accommodate agreement. But make no mistake about it, um, either this agreement will include provisions that will meet up to the necessary standards to address all of those issues, or it will include the framework by which they can be resolved within the institutions. And the litmus test will be, as you rightly say, whether or not citizens in the north can see that when these institutions are re-established that there is a fundamental reform in terms of how these matters are addressed in order to ensure that people can see a set of institutions that actually deliver for them in their lives and that allows the full outworking working of all the provisions of the Good Friday Agreement to be implemented once and for all.
5: And then we see politicians uh, return uh, to their desks uh, at a a time where the United Kingdom is about to leave the European Union. Uh, What influence will Stormont have uh, on Northern Ireland's role in or out of the European Union?
3: Well, that remains to be seen. And of course, one of the um, issues that has been thrown at Sinn Féin over the past number of years is that had. Stormont being established, that the North would um, have a more effective voice in the Brexit negotiations. Of course, all of that was actually ludicrous, um, and the experience of Scotland um, put that in really stark contrast. Thankfully, um, Sinn Féin have been able to influence and direct the the manner in which the Brexit negotiations have been have taken. One of the reasons why the North has been protected to some degree in terms of the withdrawal agreement, has been because of Sinn Féin's influence, not only in terms of the work that our MPs have done in Westminster, but crucially the work that we have done in the European Parliament, in, in Washington, in Dublin, in conjunction with the Irish government and others. Um, so that work will continue. But what I would hope as well is that a uh, restored assembly will have that collective resolve to ensure that those protections are not only strengthened but maintained through the trade deal that's going to be negotiated and that we can ensure that there is an all-Ireland um, dimension to how we deal with the Brexit impasse, because we're now at a situation mm-hmm. in the first phase of the negotiations there was a particular need to protect the north of Ireland from the Tory Brexit agenda. What there is now a very clear need for is mm-hmm. mechanisms to protect the entire island of Ireland through the final trade deal, because every business, every farmer, every community Mm
5: -hmm.
6: um,
3: could be adversely impacted by a bad trade deal. Um, Would you agree that the DUP have
5: been humiliated by Boris Johnson?
3: I think the DUP have played their cards very badly throughout Mm -hmm. this process. I think they made the wrong call in calling for a leave vote in the referendum, and I think they subsequently um, took the wrong um, approach for... All other political voices in the North were arguing for protections for the North in relation to Brexit. For them to argue against those protections because of some um, deluded sense of loyalty to the Union, um, and,
5: and they've lost that. The wrong call. They've lost that ability to rule from Westminster that we mentioned earlier on. Uh, how effective that was or not, you can uh, debate forever and a day. But uh, they would have seen themselves in a position of power. They've lost that power now and they are on the back foot, humiliated or otherwise. Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, they're open to negotiations. So is Sinn Féin insisting on a border poll as part of this uh, agreement to restore the institutions?
3: Well, it's not a matter of Sinn Féin. Insisting on a border poll, a border poll and a vote in relation to the future constitutional status of the North is a direct provision within the Good Friday Agreement. What we have always asked for in the first instance is that we put in place the mechanisms by which people are clear, first of all, in what circumstances that poll will be called. And we've also called for support from other political voices to actually start preparing for the inevitability that a poll will take place. Um, so that we put in place the um, insurances that when people go to vote, they know exactly Mm -hmm. what they're voting for, Um, but also that we start now putting in place the measures to ensure that when that happens, if it's successful, and of course we believe people should be working very strongly to make sure that it is successful, but that not only is the result successful, but the outworkings of the result are successful. That's why we've asked other political parties to join with us in actually talking about, what the constitutional, the economic and political framework of a united Ireland would be so we can make sure that a united Ireland is the success for everybody that we believe it can be. Um, So in many respects, um, things have moved on so much over the past three years. When you think about the economic aspects in relation to Irish units, um, are almost now accepted by anybody who's looking at this logically. Pe- the biggest argument that people used to say to me is, "Sure, we can't afford a united Ireland? I think people are increasingly seeing that we can no longer afford a divided Ireland. The partition has been an absolute failure. I think politically and socially, people are, just to use the experience of the DUP in Westminster, I think people across the north are seeing that a Westminster parliament will never have the interests of any part of Ireland. They will always be willing to sell out any political party in the north, including their most loyal supporters in the DUP, in the event that their political priorities take uh, precedence. Okay. So to, to quite frankly, the future of Ireland belongs to the Irish people. So yes, um, from these negotiations, I hope that it will um, result in a much clearer picture in terms of what context a uh, poll will take place But crucially, what I hope it will do is spur on all those political parties who claim to want to see United Ireland to actually come with us and actually set in place the building blocks to make it a success. And that is very directly pointed at Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and those other political parties who say
6: Mm -hmm. that Mm
3: -hmm. this isn't the right time or or other such um, arguments. It's not a matter of... Politicians being able to decide these things because I think the people are ahead of them on this. What politicians have a responsibility to do is to plan to make it a success, and that's my hope for twenty twenty.
5: Matt Carthy, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on uh, the program uh, this morning, Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. FM. Now, yesterday we returned to work, as uh, perhaps you did, I'm sure many people did, uh, for that matter. Hard to get back into the routine. Uh, but you do, don't you? And uh, to a large degree, it's good to get back to work and get back to normality. Let's talk to a couple of people who found themselves in a very different situation yesterday. Raymond Darling and Melissa Lynch are in studio with me. And uh, you were both to return to work yesterday and you turned up for work. But it, it seems uh, as though somebody else might have been given your job. That's
7: that's exactly what happened, um, Mike. We arrived as advised. We were... Contracted to the end of our uh, site in Dulik, mm. and we arrived. Our former employer sent us a letter advising us that we were to arrive at work as usual, and that there'd be a new employer uh, looking after us. Uh, this was a usual format. This has happened in the past, so we we suspected nothing different. Mm. So we arrived at the site yesterday.
5: You're contract, uh, yeah, yeah. contract cleaners.
7: Yeah, we're contract cleaners. Some people would say the lowest paid in society, but we're, mm. we're good. We enjoyed the job and the job enjoyed us, it mm. seems, until yesterday. Uh, so we arrived and uh, we were told, no, you have no job. Mm. Was it? No, uh, what do we do next? No, where do we go? Mm. Uh, there's... Uh, no letters to no sign letters. on no, mm. no no nothing P45, no
8: just
5: none nothing at all Not just no see it bye bye and you've been there 8 years have you always yeah yeah, yeah yeah i've yeah, been yeah. there 8
7: years part yeah. of the furniture i taught. Yeah, yeah. like do you know what i mean
5: pa- paid indirectly under contract uh, by indiver
7: it's paid indirectly mm-hmm. but it's like mm-hmm. it's like most jobs like mm-hmm. that you develop a direct relationship you develop mm-hmm. a friendship which goes beneath uh, your wages, like you have direct contact with mm. management. Management referred to, you, referred to me as Ray, mm. not Mr Darling. There was nothing mm. informal about mm-hmm. it. I was, I was the most uh, normal person in the job. Yeah. I actually mm-hmm. had a... Uh, a discussion with John Ahern one day in, where, in the lift where he made a comment that He's I the was, managing director He's the managing director, yeah, 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 of yeah, Ireland yeah, and UK yeah. He made the comment to me that I was the most important worker in the plant because I'm mm. front the house, which was nice at the time, but when you go back to it now, you really wonder because I've but effect- you, weren't,
5: you I mean, in fairness, you weren't working directly for him. His no. company paid the company that you were working for, they employed you, and what's happened is the contract has gone to somebody else Did mm. you realise that was happening, Melissa? that somebody else was taking over the contract. We
8: were notified. Right. So we were that there was going to be a transfer of undertakings happening and mm. we were assured that we were going to get transferred over to the new cleaning company so we were. Mm. And then when we were torn to return back to work yesterday, we were torn back to work yesterday and then told that. There was
5: no jobs for us. Okay, transfer of undertakings, uh, that's a a phrase that refers uh, to a European directive in actual fact. Uh, And uh, according to the Workplace Relations Commission, when a business or part of a business is taken over by another employer as a result of a merger or a transfer, a transfer of undertakings Mm -hmm. occurs. That's uh, the legal phrase. And when the transfer takes place, there is a legal obligation on the new employer to take on the existing staff or Uh, of the business or the part of the business concerned Uh, and it it seems as though for some reason this didn't happen this is the european community's protection of employees on transfer of undertakings regulation 2003 what's commonly known as uh, the 2b regulation
9: yeah
5: Uh, and you've made this case uh, to the company that has taken over the contract have you
7: Yes, we uh we what we done yesterday was we we suspected something a little bit was up because obviously we knew the the lads in Indivar and they said, All your equipment is being moved around. So we didn't know what was going on but we said there's something up. So what we done was we spoke to a local TD and we asked him would he accompany us just as a voice or someone to witness. Do you know what I mean? In other <coughs> words, a tour a party. That, yeah. Yeah.
5: This is uh, Fianna Fail TD Tom Thomas, Thomas, Bourne. Thomas Bourne, Bourne. Yeah, and he very
7: mm-hmm. greatly mm-hmm. did. And he with us went in there yesterday. And Martina, uh, my my boss, I suppose, my direct supervisor, uh, asked uh, where were our jobs were essentially. Mm. And then Thomas turned around and pointed out, you know, you're obliged to transfer them under two pay regulations. Mm-hmm. And he was told, no, he wasn't. He, Thomas was told, no, he's not obliged. Uh, the new company, uh, AS Clean, said they were not obliged to transfer them. So they seem to be under the opinion that they're not obliged to transfer us. But I suppose the crux of the whole thing for us is. And, but the meeting
5: yesterday was with Indiver, was it? The,
7: no, the meeting was, was There was no meeting. Indiver never even. No no representation was made to mm. us. No, yesterday nobody. we just
8: returned back to work as normal, as, mm. as stated in the letter, the 2nd of January, to return yep. back to work mm-hmm. as normal. So that's what we all as a team went into mm. to, to be rejected then on site to be told that there's no. Work for us,
5: and, and who told you that there was no work for you? Um, the the AS
8: cleaning, cleaning. So the, where we thought we were going in to start our new employment, just transfer over. But so, so
5: they're not accepting that there's an obligation on them under yeah. the TUPE regulations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
8: Yeah. yeah, so that's leaving us in a situation now. Where do we go? What do we do? Like mm. we've no but, letter. no. There,
5: there's five of you, just to mention. There's five of yes, us, yes. yes. But
7: we find the whole situation quite confusing. Because in talking to our former employer yesterday, they were quite infu- confused by the fact that Indivar said they were taking the cleaning in-house to avoid their obligations under two pay. Yeah. But yet, then we find out that they send another mail saying, "As hey, yes, cleaning has the contract. So we asked ourselves, why are they trying to avoid their obligations under two pay? And yet they're contracting it out to a cleaning company. Mm. It, it, it's very confusing for for people of simple nature that just want to work.
5: Mm. And your previously pre- previous employer seemed to think uh, that your jobs were secure. Oh, that yes. oh a yeah.
7: previous employer, he's been absolutely brilliant with mm. us. Now, we mm. have to take faith that he's acting in good faith. Mm-hmm. He's came, he's met, mm. as he said... Well, Well, I I mean, I I
5: read directly from uh, the WRC's website earlier on uh, uh, about what should happen legally uh, when a business is transferred from one company to uh, another. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any reason why that doesn't apply under this circumstance, Mm -hmm. but that seems to be the position of uh, the new contract company. uh, And there is no interference of any sort, no input of any sort from Indifer Ireland?
7: I don't know what, sorry, I don't know what you mean but that, forgive me, but there's no uh, contact. But they haven't
5: intervened, I mean. That's, no, that's there's been no contact. Yeah. Yeah. The no. only
7: way Indifer have intervened in this, if you want to call it an intervention, is to say that we've been very good at our jobs yeah. and they've been very, very happy with us. They even paid us, this is where it gets mm. really mm-hmm. nitty gritty, they even paid us the last two weeks in December not to walk. Mm. They've actually paid us not to walk. It's the strangest circumstance in the world that you would pay an employer not to walk. Then when they turn up to actually go back to walk, there's no job there's no representation, Mm. there's no contact, there's no good boy see you, thanks very much.
5: You're left high and dry. A lot of the people Mm. in the country yes, they complain about having to go back to work Mm. Uh, in the meanwhile you don't have that luxury if you like, you're left high and dry Uh, I just want to mention uh, before we finish up because we'll finish up for the moment, we will come back to this Uh, we have uh, tried to make contact with Alan Smith Cleaning Services Uh, that hasn't uh, proven possible. Uh, We have made contact with Indivere Ireland and we haven't heard back from them as yet and we hope to hear back from them before the end of the programme today. Uh, but uh, we will return to this. I, I know that there is some political interest in it, and uh, I think there's a, a lot of uh, people who would be concerned about what has happened to you and your colleagues.
7: Well, I'm very concerned. What our concern is are the two pay regulations not straightforward it is what it is you, you lose your job in one aspect and then you're transferred to another mm. but now this is being brought into question like and at the end of the day my f- former employer exists my potential new employer exists I'm in the middle
5: with nothing. Well, I I think it's different if your former employer had gone bankrupt uh, but otherwise Mm -hmm. uh, to read once again from the WRC website when a transfer takes place there is a legal obligation on the new employer to take on the existing staff of the business or the part of the business concerned. That's fairly straightforward in black and white as I say from the WRC C. what it is it's black and <laughs> white and perhaps uh, if uh, we're misunderstanding that Indiver or uh, ASC can explain to us uh, what the problem is but we will come back to it and thank you both for coming into to us today okay, very thanks, thanks very much for having thank us Thank you very much indeed thank Raymond you. Darling and Melissa Lynch
9: Michael, Michael
5: Reed on LMFM. Now, politicians in Northern Ireland will hope to reach an agreement which will see the restoration of uh, the Assembly and indeed uh, the return of government in Northern Ireland. As part of that, uh, you'll be hearing uh, how unionists are, are looking for a commitment to funding... Projects such as the A5 motorway. It seems all but certain that that funding will be available uh, to the motorway from uh, the Irish government. In fact, just before Christmas, the Minister for Transport, Shane Ross, had told the Dáil that the government has committed and ring-fenced some €75 million for this project. But the problem Uh, is delays to the project uh, because of legal objections, planning objections uh, to the A5 going ahead. He was responding to questions from Brendan Smith and Declan Brallock, two Fianna Fáil TDs, uh, and couldn't say the same about the narrow water bridge, unfortunately. The overall assessment of the case for a narrow water bridge, including in the context of developing a wider tourism
4: initiative for the region, is not at a stage where there is a clearly defined and
5: costed Scheme. It is not possible, therefore, to ring-fence funding for a narrow water bridge scheme in advance of future discuss- dis- decisions on the scheme, including consideration by a reconvened NSMC. All right. uh, Let's talk about uh, this uh, with Brendan Smith, who, as I say, with Declan Brannock, had raised uh, these issues uh, in uh, the Dáil just before Christmas. Good morning to you, Brendan Smith, and thanks uh, for joining us here on uh, the programme this morning. I suppose unionists can rest easy, first of all, uh, because uh, they seem to be making a bit of a a fuss about funding from the Republic for the A5. The Minister made it clear that that funding will be made available if uh, permission is given to go ahead.
10: Absolutely. And the minister made the phrase, he said, we are as committed as your party was when you were in government, when the original commitment was made to fund the a to partially fund the A5. And I don't think there's any question there um, since, since... the signing of the Good Friday Agreement, the St Andrews Agreement, in regard to the A5 project, successive governments in the meantime have committed themselves to providing the funding when the necessary planning processes were gone through in Northern Ireland. Unfortunately, there have been delays with, with some, um, public, some public opposition through the planning process and also legal opposition. And Minister Ross, in his reply to both Deputy, Declan Branagh and, and myself in the Dáil just before Christmas, he mentioned that there's a further inquiry due to be commence again on February 2020. So we sincerely hope for the benefit of the north-east and the north-west of our country that the A5 project would go ahead because it's extremely important in the context of the, of the N2 through, yeah. through County Monaghan, then going on into Tyrone, Derry and to Donegal and we know of the extreme importance of the A5 to our, to our colleague, colleagues and friends living in the north-west particularly in Donegal, Derry, Tyrone and back in the County Monaghan as well. And... um, the delay, in fairness, has not been on the part of any government go- going back nearly 20 years in this state. It has been on the northern side, and we understand the planning processes have to be gone through mm. properly, but I would sincerely hope that we would get to the stage where the A5 project could get to construction. It's in a, it would be a very important route right through, when you take from, from the, linking up with the end to, through County, County Me Monaghan, right up to the northwest of our country.
5: Okay, but you couldn't be as optimistic I, I take it about the narrow water bridge given what the minister said about that project?
10: He did. Well he put the point in, and he accepted the points that Declan Deputy, that Deputy Branagh made so well in regard to the importance of this project. First of all it would be a huge benefit for trade, for tourism and for connectivity. It, it would enable the linking of the two communities on both sides yeah. of 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 the water and it would enhance the overall tourism project in the border region. And 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 a good project like that can enhance the natural environment as well. I I believe the case was made quite a number of years ago in regard to 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 building the narrow water Mm -hmm. bridge. And I remember at the time it there was something like seventeen 17.4
5: Seventeen point four million. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the case was made, and the case was the argument was won, uh, and the funding was made uh, available. European funding of seventeen point four million euro, uh, and it was put out the tender, uh, but it came in uh, uh, at an estimated cost that was twelve million. Yeah, twelve million more.
10: Yeah, well I don't know where that is and, and and in fairness through through processes when those number of years have elapsed you, you have unfortunately go back to the drawing board in some instances in regard to costs and in regard to the business case that the department has to make. But the Minister pointed out that the, that the Department the Department of Infrastructure in Northern Ireland that they have to make a business case um, in relation to, to this proposal that that work is underway but I would sincerely really? hope that the message would go out from government government here and from hopefully a soon-to-be-restored executive in Northern Ireland that we want to show that we're developing infrastructure on an all-Ireland basis. Give out Hmm. the message that we want to link our communities in Louth and in South Down and in neighbouring areas and that. Give out the message that we want to maximise the potential of the natural resources of our region to bring additional visitors, to create jobs. But this
5: is a pipe dream, is it not? I mean, we've already made a fool of ourselves over this pipe dream uh, because uh, we applied... To Europe for funding. We got seventeen and a half million euro. Then we discovered we couldn't afford it because it was going to cost twelve million more than that. And so we took the money anyway, and we spent it. I think we spent ten million upgrading the viaduct in Draha out of that seventeen and a half million and went to other projects. And here we are again at a time when Leath County Council has spent two point two million euro so far on the narrow water bridge, which has no prospect of being constructed.
10: Oh, it has every prospect of being constructed, I, I, I would think, that, um, Michael. I remember in my early days in politics when, when there was uh, uh, there were um, proposals to um, to restore the, what was then known as the Betty Connell baltimore Canal. That was a piece of disused canal. Um, that linked the Erden and the Shannon. I remember at that time, the Fianna Fáil party in government, and my predecessor in this constituency, the late Thomas John Wilson, as Minister for Tourism, he led the drive to restore the Barry Connell-Ballon Canal. We were told at the time that that's a pipe dream, it will never happen. Let us remember, that was in the late 1980s, early 1990s. That canal was restored. It is now the Erden-Shannon Waterway. Mm. It's one of Ireland's biggest attractions today. And let us remember that that was that was prepared and planned and the necessary engineering preparation works and all that but we so got 70, we we got 70 technology and a half million. that we have today and that has been an extremely successful Project attracting Perhaps visitors so, to both Northern got, Ireland and our own state. Similarly, mm, a much, much smaller project, and then our water bridge can be done very well as well, I believe.
5: Maybe so, but we got €17.5 million Euro for it. That money went up in smoke, and since that money went up in smoke, uh, we've uh, realised uh, the Newry Southern Relief Road.
10: Yeah, what happened at that time is that the Taoiseach, as, as Minister of Transport, didn't provide that additional funding that was needed the addition, because the European funding um, did not meet the full cost, estimated cost of the contract to carry out that work. Unfortunately, the government at that time, in 2012, I think it was, didn't provide that additional funding that was needed. There was a time limit under the particular um, scheme that Europe was providing the funding under. Either Ireland had to use that money for some other project or lose it. Now you didn't want to lose it what I would have thought at the time and I remember in the Good Friday Agreement arguing along with Seamus mm. Kirk as a TD at the time as well, arguing that the government should provide that additional funding to ensure that the Narrow Water Bridge project would go ahead and there were different groups from both County Down and County Down came to the, joint, to the Good Friday Committee at the time and made a very strong case in regard to the need to progress that project at but, that
5: time. The is the case. That
10: didn't have. We are what we are but what is, now. We, where are what see, now?
5: we now? We have a blank page, haven't we? Uh, I mean,
10: no, no, not at all. Declan Branock said that the, the first of all, the planning permissions are, are in place. The money that Louth the County planning Council planning have invested in yeah, mm-hmm. the project today, that's
3: that's not
5: going. But to the be m- but the, no, and and they remain in place because uh, as part of that two million, 2.2 point two million euro spend uh, from Louth County Council, they sent people to do some work uh, uh, to make sure that the planning permission stayed. Uh, alive but the minister said we're not at a stage where there's a clearly defined and costs scheme and therefore it's not possible to ring fence money for the scheme because it doesn't exist if you like
10: but but this that would be, my, my understanding is, that's put an overall scheme t- together, the cost of it in regard to, to the construction of the actual bridge. And if a government department seeks funding from their Department of Finance, they have to put forward a business case in relation to, uh, obviously, the, the estimated projected cost of the scheme, and the benefits that would accrue from that investment, I can state that the, the people in the Department of Finance or public expenditure or whatever, they should look at the benefits that came to the Fermanagh, Cavan leitrim a much wider region from the restoration of the ballyconnell Ballamore Canal. And I have to say if, if the Fianna Fáil government took the advice at the time, no you shouldn't go ahead with that. That was the public opinion, that was the opinion of, of some senior civil servants at the time. It wouldn't have gone ahead but it, there has to be um, vision in regard to putting in place tourism projects in regard to putting in place infrastructure and at this particular time, when we face Brexit, the border region needs particular um, initiatives. They, they need a clear message that we're going to continue to develop our economy on an all-Ireland basis. Give, give a clear message out that linking south down and, and, and Loud is, is, is will be good for the region, it's good for communities, good for tourism development, good for the local economy, and good for the overall economy. It can be done. Let's have a bit of vision in regard to... to um, putting in place new infrastructure in our country and at this particular time, in an all-Ireland context let us look at providing new facilities that will benefit communities north and south and that will benefit the overall economies north and south as
5: well. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. That's Brendan Smith, Fianna Fáil TD for Cavan Monaghan.
9: Michael
0: Michael
5: on on let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie.
0: Good morning, Michael, and good morning to all of our listeners. Gerard from Drajah is one of those listeners. He thinks it's a disgrace that those politicians in the North are still getting paid, Michael, even if it's not the full amount, but they are still getting paid for doing what, he wants to know, an absolute waste of money. Uh, On that same topic, Tom says that he's not holding out much hope for a successful outcome to the talks in the North, even though there is hopes Mm. that it will happen. He feels that there's no real will amongst the parties to restart the Assembly. Why would there be when they're all being paid their salaries, regardless of whether or not the Assembly starts up again? They are literally being paid to do nothing. Why wouldn't they be happy?
5: Well, well, that's... uh True, in part. Uh, the other part is uh, that uh, if uh, there isn't a, a deal by the 13th of January, there'll have to be an election.
0: That's right. Uh, Joe from Kells thinks that Matt Carthy is deluded if he thinks that most people in the Republic want a united Ireland. How will we afford it and think of the possible trouble that could be caused by it? He thinks that um, the MEP could be disappointed by the result of a poll. Mm. Big. So there you go, that's an interesting yeah. one. Declan from Dundalk uh, believes that the DUP is never ever going to want a united Ireland but thinks that there should be a poll. Mm, OK. <laughs> so no matter what the timing, I think he was referring to that no time will ever be right mm. when it comes to the DUP. No, well of course not. No, having.
5: well the DUP are unionists, so That's obviously it. they don't want a united Ireland. It's not a, a union with the Republic that they're looking for. No.
0: Mm. Um, still staying with the DUP, mm. John says that the DUP have left the North down big time regarding their position on Brexit and also because of the power that they held during the last government in Westminster, that they didn't use it, he feels, to benefit the six counties. They are a party that's trapped in the past and can't seem to move forward at all for the good of all the people.
5: Mm. Well, John. I'm sure there's many who would disagree.
0: <laughs> Sharon was listening to your interview Uh, with the cleaners who had been working in Indiver, and cannot understand why the jobs were not just transferred to the new cleaners it must be awful blow to them to turn up for work and be told they no longer have jobs especially Michael at this time of year when people have so many bills to pay after Christmas
5: Yeah well I can't answer that don't understand it Uh, on the face of things it's very hard to to understand but perhaps uh, we'll get uh, an explanation and some clarity on it uh, either from uh, the new contractor ASC or from Indifer before the end of the programme.
0: On your um, interview uh, regarding the Narrow Water Bridge project and things, that you, Michael, are bang on the money when you say that the Narrow Water is a pipe dream. We've been hearing about this project for years but is it actually any further along and where is the money to build it supposed to come from mm.
5: Surely Well we they got the money
0: <laughs> It hasn't been used.
5: Well no, it has but on something else, uh, I mean we got 17.5 million, 10 million went uh, on uh, refurbishing uh, the fire in uh, Drogheda uh, and uh, lots of money spent elsewhere but the 17.5 million has been spent because it had to be spent uh, and we couldn't spend it on the Narrow Water Bridge because we were 12 million short.
0: Well Anfield, maybe there's more important things to spend state money on at the minute rather than a bridge that we've managed just fine without up until now.
5: Well, yeah, I know maybe we have managed fine, but perhaps uh, we'd be better off with it. I think there's a lot of people who would uh, agree that there's a a lot of benefits uh, to realising a a bridge over Carlingford Lock.
0: Mary was listening into the Commons yesterday about the litter in Drogheda and why it's not being cleaned, etc. And she makes the point that the streets wouldn't be dirty if it wasn't for the people throwing the rubbish away. Things that people need to take a look at themselves and their actions. Mm, God, and
5: I thought it fell out of the sky. <laughs> mm.
0: An interesting phone call from Michael in Navin, who says that there is definitely a big divide in Ireland between the haves and the have-nots when we see the record number of homeless people and then you think of the money that was spent so needlessly by all of us over the festive season. He says that if you look in half of the bins put out for collection, he'd expect that you'd see them filled with leftover food that was never touched. Yet we have kids going
5: to school hungry. Yeah, well, there's a point in that, I'm sure. Uh, an awful lot of uh, food is wasted and we are a very wealthy country and we have an awful lot of people who are living in deprivation. But where do you find the balance? I suppose this is an interesting question. It's one that will probably be played out in uh, the campaign for the next general election. We are on the brink of a general election. And if you don't, Believe me, let's take a listen to some of the talk out of the Taoiseach.
1: I am now two and a half years uh, as Taoiseach, so my team have set me a challenge, and that is to um, list as many of the things that we've got done the past two and a half years, um, but to do it in two and a half minutes. So here goes. Okay, start the clock. So we secured a deal on Brexit that protects Ireland's interests, no hard border, travel area protected, created 100,000 jobs, 2.3 million people at work, the highest ever, unemployment's now at a 13-year low. We've brought the public finances that had been in deficit into surplus, modernised the Constitution three times, blasphemy, the Eighth Amendment and divorce. We've reduced income tax and the USC, putting more money in your pocket, increased the minimum wage twice, and pay for hard-working public servants. We've increased the pension and weekly social welfare rates by €10 Euros a week, fully restored the Christmas bonus. We've reduced poverty, deprivation, and income inequality, put in place more protections and benefits for the self-employed, also farmers too, uh, introduced free GP care for carers and more people on low incomes, uh, reduced medicine costs for people with medical cards and also people who don't. We've ratified the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities and the Istanbul Convention on Domestic Violence lifted more than 13,000 children out of poverty, brought in an extra preschool year, paternity benefit, paid parental leave for the first time. Um, The National Childcare Scheme, making childcare more affordable for families, opened 12 new respite care centres, introduced new subjects in school like PE and computer science and politics and society, 2,700 extra SNAs hired, 300 extra special classes, the biggest budgets ever for health, mental health, disability and education. We've built 40,000 new houses and apartments, Uh, 14,000 people helped to buy with the Help to Buy scheme the biggest social housing programme in decades with 10,000 more social homes being provided this year Uh, lifted 14,000 people out of homelessness and into secure housing attested 2,000 extra new Gardaí um, published a climate action plan banned fracking, oil exploration, single use plastics in government departments reached 30% renewable electricity for the first time increased the fuel allowance, the living loan allowance and the child depend allowance we're also delivering on Project Ireland 2040, signed the national broadband contract at long last, three new hospitals under construction, new roads, health centres, schools being built all over the country, uh, 2,000 more doctors, nurses, midwives, and therapists hired in our health service. Reduced the waiting times for hospital procedures like cataracts, hips, knee replacements, veins, tonsils, all those things. Introduced rapid HIV testing, prepped HIV vaccine for boys, $100 million for farmers uh, to help with um, incomes related to beef. ANC payments increased the Citizen Assembly of gender equality, uh, legislation on gender pay gap, increased the budget for arts, heritage, and culture by 20%. Increased the budget for the Gail Tuck by 24%. Increased the budget for international development and expanded peacekeeping. Granted citizenship to 18,000 people. A hundred million in sports grants being given to 3,000 clubs, welcomed the Pope to Ireland, uh, also uh, reformed our pension laws so that a lot of people, about 40,000 people, mainly women, uh, who weren't getting the full pension are now getting the full pension or an increased pension. And that's as much as I can fit in in two and a half minutes.
5: Well, well, done. give that man a cuddly toy. (laughs) That's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Radker, uh, who is uh, speaking at a a mile a minute uh, to fit in all of the achievements that uh, the government uh, can stand over in two and a half minutes and that's the sort of thing I suppose that you can expect to hear from uh, Fine and uh, indeed uh, others uh, over the course of the coming weeks as uh, the general election campaign looms but I suppose there will be other things that you might wish to remind the Taoiseach of uh, and perhaps uh, you'd care to take two and a half minutes to list out some of the things that haven't been achieved uh, whether that's <laughs> to do with housing and homelessness and uh, the record number of people who are without a home in this country or the record number of people who are on trolleys or so on and so forth.
0: Just staying with the uh, general election, Grania was in touch to say she was listening in yesterday and she thinks the teacher should put us out of her misery and just let us know when it's happening. She can't stand all this speculation, Michael. It's bad enough when it is on and we have to be listening to the politicians uh, trying to win mm. the vote over. So that's her thoughts on it. Okay. So let us know, Leo. Let us know when okay. the date is going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Siobhan was in touch, and Siobhan thinks we've lost the plot altogether. And what's she talking about? She's talking about Christmas. She says, uh, Michael, the people who are putting up the Christmas decorations as early as November, November, were taking them down on St Stephen's Day it's an absolute joke people don't know what Christmas is all about anymore Fergus was listening in and Fergus operates a crane on the docks in Drogheda and he wants to put it to the politicians that he notices every 10 to 15 minutes a public bus with little or no people on it pass by and wants to know is this a good way of using taxpayers' money
5: Okay, thanks for that. Please,
0: the final word to Fergus.
5: Thanks, Marie, and thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us. If you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 1850 715
9: 958. Michael Reed on LMFM.
5: Now let's talk about ambulance drivers if we can. Paul Bell, SIPTU Health Division organiser, will I'm sure take great exception at that introduction Uh, and indeed I'm sure many of the paramedics he represents Mm -hmm. will also. uh, Tell us uh, about uh, this campaign for respect for what a lot of people quite innocently refer to as ambulance drivers.
4: Good morning Michael and uh, thank you very much for inviting me in and a happy new year to you and, and the listeners. Yes, uh, I suppose it's a
5: good way of starting off
4: the introduction because there was once upon a time there was such an occupation as ambulance driver Uh, and that could be anything from the the porter in the hospital driving the ambulance vehicle either to a home or a road traffic accident and a medical professional, normally a nurse or a doctor Mm. would then intervene with the patient and from there the patient was brought to the hospital. Sounds like a very simple system. It worked for many years uh, until one day it was decided quite rightly, Mm. Uh, we need now ambulance professionals, we need paramedics, emergency medical Mm. technicians. Why do we need those? Very simple, it gives the best opportunity to the patient immediately that the ambulance service makes contact with well, I think it's probably
5: also due to advancements in medical science. Absolutely. And medical science is such that it's now possible to treat a patient en route okay. to a healthcare facility and perhaps save a life.
4: Absolutely. And so we talk about the golden arrow. So mm. the golden arrow is basically from the minute the call is made to the ambulance service, the treatment starts over the phone. The ambulance professionals are dispatched either by ambulance or an advanced paramedic vehicle. They get to the scene and then start to work with that patient also. And at this point, we've gone from uh, what you know as an ambulance driver to an ambulance professional that can issue up to 45 different types of life-saving medication, make an assessment of the patient, communicate that to the ambulance professionals waiting at the hospital so the best possible outcome can be achieved. Uh, What has happened over that period, despite the fact that ambulance professionals are trained up to the level of degree and trained up to the level of masters, mm. is that you neither know, their recognition as a profession has actually changed. And indeed, their pay scales, uh, where they are on the consolidated pay scale for the public service, has not changed. In fact, you will not be able to find a paramedic or mm. an advanced paramedic on a public service pay scale. What you will find is an emergency medical technician and allowances is added on to this.
5: Mm. So one stage where we're talking about bus drivers who used to bus patients to hospitals or yeah. elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, now we're talking about medics, talking uh, who, medics yeah. who are administering treatment. Making clinical decisions mm-hmm. yeah. in some mm-hmm.
4: cases, mm-hmm. medical decisions. Uh, and by, by the way, it's a range of you know, complicated mm-hmm. environments that the ambulance professionals attend. It can be in the home, mm-hmm. on the roadside, the workplace, mm-hmm. the sports field. Treating to everything
5: from cardiac arrest, stroke, mm. serious trauma. Deciding whether it's a cardiac a, a arrest or angina. Absolutely. And and, and, all the, and, and how to intervene. And,
4: and how to intervene. Mm. The ambulance vehicles themselves mm. now are no longer what they were. Mm. I mean, some people say, well, the ambulance vehicle I'm now driving now is, a, is like a spaceship compared mm. to where I was maybe... Twenty or thirty years ago, mm. from people have come through all that system, mm. Prob- probably like a spaceship compared to a hospital fifty years ago. Absolutely, so mm. and, and things have become more complicated. Mm. Greater demands are being made, and because we are, we've often had in the studio, Michael, the talk about the failure of the ambulance system because of um, response times, mm. whereby ambulance professionals measure the their failure or their success by patient outcome. At the moment, what we have is that we have you know, medical professionals clinical professionals like nurses doctors midwives radiographers who are all registered and regulated Mm. ambulance professionals are registered with the pre-hospital emergency care council which basically means everybody who's qualified as an emergency medical technician be they working in the Dublin Fire Brigade be they working in the uh, National Ambulance Service or voluntary group must have a registration number but this organisation is not recognised like Kuru. Or the National uh, Nursing and Midwifery Board, which also, you know, gives probably the best uh, protection for the ambulance, the ambulance professionals themselves, and for the public. Mm. Uh, so it was understood that over the last 5 to 10 years that when Kuru was being set up which is the regulation body for radiographers, uh, physiotherapists uh, social workers that the ambulance professionals would find themselves in mm. there and therefore be recognised for the profession that they are that has not developed uh, we find that very very mm. uh, disturbing and we do believe that the Department of Health in particular the Minister needs to refocus his attention on this matter
5: So there's a, a problem there in not recognising the skills yeah. Uh, yeah. of the ambulance drivers yeah. or the paramedics, the medics that yeah. they are. Uh, but is, is there also a, a problem from the public's perspective in that they're not regulated? That well, they're not that the practice isn't overseen. Well, the regulate the, the, and this is where the confusion
4: starts mm. because uh, regulation is key to anybody recognised as a medical professional. Mm. That's why we want ambulance professionals recognised in that way. We've made that claim uh, in the, almost two years ago. We do understand that the Ambulance Management, uh, the National Ambulance Service, have also communicated that to the regular th- authority to say, how are our members going to be recognised as health and social care professionals? How does that happen? Uh, the problem is, it seems to be that it's very difficult for those organisations in the regulatory family mm. to answer that question. Uh, ambulance professionals and the ambulance management would say, well, air members and air service definitely ticks all those boxes. Our members are trained to degree level. Our members are trained to masters level. Mm. So at, at that stage, they also have this patient contact, very intimate uh, patient contact, uh, very vital patient mm. contact. So why are we not recognised? Uh, this is a, in, the, in the ultimate and next step that has to happen, but it cannot happen. If, if there's no concentration by the Minister for Health, the Department of Health and the Health Service Executive.
5: Okay, and the, it's a strange job in, it is, yeah. in terms of pressure yes. uh, because we hear of paramedics who are eating their lunch off their lap yeah. because they haven't got the time to stop for lunch break. Uh, uh, on the other hand, we hear of paramedics parked up outside emergency departments because they can't get away because they can't get their patient into the care of uh, the hospital staff.
4: Well Michael we've had a conversation here before because sometimes the, the ambulance professional and the ambulance service takes I suppose the hit for a lot of things mm. that are wrong in other areas of the health service. And quite
5: often they take the hit. People the, yeah, hit
4: them. Well, because. That's another part of the, <laughs> yeah. of, of the job, unfortunately. Yeah. Other frontline staff, yeah. like uh, members of Regardless Shear Corner and all, would, would, would talk about that. But the issue for, for us is that air members are saying, look, it is time to take the next step. Yeah. We can't make that step on our own. For, over the, the period of 2019, there has been a review of the roles and responsibilities uh, of two grades. One is paramedics and one is emergency medical technicians. And that review is to to actually take cognizance of how has the job changed in a 15-year period. Now, that review was meant to be published by Christmas time. It's not going to be published until February. And we're very anxious, obviously, to see the publication of this independent report uh, uh, on the basis that we believe it will demonstrate clearly how that job has evolved Mm. from, as you would say, the ambulance driver to the ambulance professional and we believe that it will demonstrate clearly independently that the job has evolved into an unrecognisable profession compared to where one would have started off Uh, and it will also talk about we believe demonstrating the types of medication that have been issued the types of qualification and competence required to be an ambulance professional now compared to what it was Mm. therefrom we believe we have the argument to make two distinct uh, objectives a reality. One is for air members to be recognised as a professional group. Secondly, they must be rewarded and remunerated mm. as a professional group and there must be also continual investment in training and education.
5: Is that what's at the heart of this? Uh, it, it's uh, making the grounds, making the argument for a pay increase.
4: No, a pay increase, Michael, is just basically a pay increase. Mm. A pay, You know, the union says a pay claim, we want X amount of percent yeah. for that group. This is much more sophisticated than that. Uh, and it is sophisticated because the job, the occupation, Mm. the profession has changed. Like, for instance,
5: ambulance profession... But that's the justification for making the claim, is it not? I mean, it's the same thing.
4: Well, if if I was to take that view, that would say we must go through this labyrinth in order to get to this promised Mm. land and we have a pay claim. It doesn't work like that. But we we would say this, is that if you have a group of people that are not being appropriately recognised, that are not being appropriately rewarded for what they contribute, Mm. compared to the other uh, medical professionals well that issue must be addressed
5: yeah. and the responsibility that goes Absolutely. with it uh, I mean when mm-hmm. you're uh, saving lives you're also uh, putting the lives of people in the hands of those uh, and we,
4: we must have the best people and we do have hair. the best yeah. people
5: mm-hmm. ok alright look thanks for that uh, you're speaking to us as uh, the SIP2 health division organiser uh, you're also Labour Party councillor in Loud. as people will know and uh, you have concerns uh, following the Christmas period about some of uh, the presence that young people Have been receiving and how they're driving around green spaces.
4: Well, I suppose, Michael, uh, you're referring to uh, what some listeners would be very familiar with uh, the proliferation in the use of scrambler motorcycles, uh, not just in this area, but right across the county, um, where young people seem to have, you know, Santa Claus has brought them this wonderful vehicle, Mm. uh, a scrambler motorcycle, uh, or whatever, a quad, whatever. And then that particular vehicle is used in a manner which is of danger to the public, be it driven in a public green space or be it driven on a public road. Mm. Uh, people in the south side of town uh, of Drahota, uh over a Christmas period would have been subjected to uh, a number of individuals uh, whereby a heavy duty scrambler motorcycle was being driven around at high speed around the estates quite close to this studio. Mm. So much so, by the way, that I had to respond to calls on Christmas Day, where people felt that this was getting out of hand, uh, that there was a safety issue, that there was a vehicle being driven around the streets, the young children in the area, uh, and they felt that the response of the authorities just wasn't what it needed to be. Now... Were they right? Uh, well, what should the response be? If somebody drives a vehicle illegally on on the public road, that's
5: covered under the Road Traffic Act. The
4: yeah, Corn- well,
5: I mean, you have to be of a certain age, you have to be licensed, absolutely. you have to be insured, you have to yeah. be taxed, uh, and uh, the vehicle must be roadworthy.
4: Absolutely. So, taking all that into account, uh, obviously, on Gardashire Corner, do respond to calls for people misbehaving or mm. acting in a manner on a road
5: uh, that is not conducive to safe Behaviour. Well, that's it. Uh, apart from okay. the conditions of taking a vehicle onto the yeah. road, there's uh, the rules of the road. The rules of the road. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Garethshire Corner have been responding to calls from all over the county and,
4: in what I'm referring to, have responded to the best of their ability. There are two issues that arise here. If someone's caught using a vehicle and it's not insured, it's not roadworthy, well, then that's taken under the Road Traffic Act. However, what has developed, and Garda Commissioner Drew Harris has communicated to to the Minister for Justice about this matter, is that there's a grey area Mm. in the green space, as Mm. one would say, whereby these vehicles have been driven uh, on public green space, Mm. and whether or not they're covered by the Road Traffic Act. Um, So much so that there has been a big call from people who have suffered at the hands of this Type of behaviour where one gentleman in Dublin in twenty eighteen suffered life changing uh, injuries, oh. where he was hit by a, 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 a scrambler motorcycle mm, driven by a sixteen year yes, mm-hmm. and that man is yeah. just is recovering yeah. from yeah. a brain injury. Mm. Uh, the young person in that case was not prosecuted under the Road Traffic Act, did not even make a court appearance, and was basically dealt with under the uh, juvenile diversionary program. Mm. Now, as far as I am concerned, this is a public safety issue. Uh, never mind the individuals riding these vehicles or, being, uh, or, you know, or pillion mm-hmm. passengers. This is a public safety issue where if someone gets hit, and like in that case, be it a child or a pensioner, someone going about their, their daily business or another road user, uh, there seems to be no protection whatsoever. At this stage... While I await the Minister for Justice to take the necessary action, as requested by the way by the Guard Commissioner Drew Harris, whose initial response that he received was this matter can be dealt with under the Road Traffic Act, which it clearly cannot be. Uh, I'm now putting forward a bylaw for Low County Council uh, to have these vehicles banned from uh, inner beaches public spaces like Greens, at least at least a bylaw would take care of that because there's a question about the use of these vehicles on parks, for want of a better word. Uh, my, my opinion, they should not be used in parks anyway. Uh, I've since discovered that in Low County Council, there is only one area that has a bylaw, which is the Cooley Mountains, uh, where the Dundalk Urban District Council passed a bylaw in 1999 to try and stop heavy scrambler motorcycles from being driven across public spaces. Mm-hmm. This issue has got out of hand Uh, I've also been appealing to parents you know when you give someone a vehicle a vehicle is a lethal weapon there has to be an understanding of where they can be safely used at the moment vehicles like this have been sold to people that's obviously the law Uh, there's also a grey area when the guards seize a vehicle that the vehicle can be just bought back out of the the corner by paying the yep. the, 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 the fine. Mm-hmm. There's no request to produce insurance. There's no request to produce the various certificates needed for the vehicle because most of the times, Michael, they are not registered. This can't continue because if it does continue, as already identified, there has been a very serious injury mm-hmm. to one gentleman, but it's only a matter of time before there will be a fatality. And then the question will be asked, well, why wasn't this issue addressed? But this a lot of this issue does relate back to parental control, does relate back to, uh, we, we would have seen, uh, I'm sure, the social media uh, footage of a young child on a motorcycle over Christmas, where uh, he, I think he was about four year old, well, on, a, on a small motorcycle and crashes into a lamppost. And now, I'm glad share investigating that, and so was Tusla, because they see that as a child protection issue. Yeah. And that's my understanding from media reports that that happened in the north side of Dublin over the Christmas period.
5: Okay. We'll leave it there for the moment. As you say, you hope to introduce bylaws to tackle that. uh, But uh, thank you for joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Paul Bell, the Mayor of Drogheda and Labour Party Councillor.
9: Michael Michael Reed on
5: on LMFM. Now there's been a strong reaction uh, to a protest that took place on New Year's Day at the National Maternity Hospital. Around 100 people gathered at Hollis Street uh, carrying crosses, small coffins and banners demonstrating against abortion services. The Minister for Health has said it was not a legitimate protest. He hopes uh, for the parties in the Dáil to come together to introduce some legislation to outlaw these type of protests and introduce exclusion zones, saying that the actions of those protesters were intimidating, sickening and anti-democratic. Let's talk about this with Liam Herrick, who is uh, the Director of the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. And a very good morning to you, Liam Herrick, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. And I suppose the question here is uh, the balance of rights uh, of those uh, to avail of health services and of those who wish to protest against those services?
11: Uh, good morning, Michael. And I think that that's a very accurate framing of the question here. Um, as your listeners will be aware, the Irish Constitution and indeed the European Convention on Human Rights provide for a general right to freedom of expression and a right to peaceful protest and these are very important democratic rights and in Ireland they're protected but they're not unlimited. Um, There are circumstances in which the state has a legitimate interest in restricting or regulating those rights. Um, In Ireland They are few, um, but there is a case that this may be one of those circumstances. And the reason for that is that we have seen a pattern over a number of years, even before the referendum, where a small number of individuals and organisations have adopted a tactic of mounting demonstrations at hospitals and indeed at other medical service providers with the intention, it would seem, of causing distress and certainly the effect of causing distress to people who are accessing legal services. And this, of course, includes women who might be accessing uh, services related to their pregnancy, perhaps abortion services, but also uh, people who might be delivering children, may have already delivered children and may have children in neonatal care, and also people who might be experiencing difficulties in their pregnancies, including miscarriage, so a, a group of individuals in society who are trying to access health care, a very fundamental and important right, are being interfered with in an illegitimate way. And I suppose the question really is uh, the right that those people have to access health care in a way that is private, is safe and is dignified on the other side. There are people who wish to express a political view, and it doesn't matter whether you agree with it or not, they have a right to do that, but they could exercise that right at a different place, at a different time, where they would be able to get their point across, but not intrude on the rights of others.
5: But the people you're talking about would argue that they're not able to get their point across in the way that they wish, which is to dissuade people from availing of abortion services.
3: Well, I
11: suppose this is when we go to the nature of the communication and under international human rights law there is very strong protection of political speech that is people who wish to go to the roads, streets of our countries to express a political point of view but when your intention is in fact to interfere with ordinary citizens who are going about their business trying to access rights themselves well then you're no longer communicating ideas you're actually intruding to the level of harassment of individuals and you know, when we look at the nature of what is being communicated here—the holding up of distressing images of fetuses, holding up of model fetuses, um, directing chants which are aimed to upset people who are accessing hospitals, who may be accessing abortion services, or the other wide range of gynaecological or obstetric services that, that exist—then you lose the protection of political speech because you are intruding into a different type of category. Now. The argument, I suppose, here is whether it is possible to strike the appropriate balance. Mm -hmm. And when we look at other parts of the world, other jurisdictions have gone down this road in the United States even though they have very strong protection of free speech in that constitutional framework, they have had restrictions on healthcare services and similarly in the United Kingdom and in Australia we have also seen legislation uh, at the local level or at the national level which has been found to strike the the proper balance between the two sets of rights.
5: Alright and uh, I suppose the protesters uh, would uh, talk about uh, their constitutional right to protest or free assembly but they would also talk about religious freedom Uh, and uh, that, uh, to a large degree, their protest is based on their religious beliefs and uh, that uh, you can't interfere with that.
11: I mean, there's very strong protection in the Irish Constitution and in the European Convention to the right to freedom of religion. But the right to whole beliefs or to even express those beliefs in the context of organized religion does not extend to all types of other behaviors. I mean, I can't invoke constitutional rights to behave in an irresponsible way which interferes with the rights of others. And I don't believe very many religious people in Ireland, whatever their faith would be, would argue that their faith extends to this type of activity, and you know this is not just an Irish isolated practice. Mm. Many of the individuals who've been mounting these demonstrations at Irish hospitals are coming from outside of Ireland or have close links with organizations, particularly in the United states uh, and, and some of the arguments that they use are in fact American arguments. You hear people talking about the First Amendment, the American Constitution giving them rights, which I think does give a bit of a flavor of where some of these tactics and strategies are coming from now I, I think in our constitutional framework it is possible to strike the appropriate balance we must do so carefully and um, above all else we must do so proportionately uh, and i think in the next week we will be writing to uh, the minister for health outlining our legal analysis of how this can be done and i think working together with all of the relevant stakeholders it's possible to do so
5: and uh, i think in uh, america uh, it gets uh somewhat hard to understand in that uh, you hear of pro-life supporters shooting doctors coming out of clinics that are providing uh, abortion services, uh, ridiculous in the extreme Uh, and I suppose that's the kind of thing that people would be concerned about here, not just uh, how people are intimidated but how this can escalate as well over a period of time. Uh, But what can be done? Because uh, we were told that something would be done uh, at the time uh, that uh, the legislation was introduced and that exclusion zones would be introduced, but here we are still talking about it.
11: Yeah, I mean, that's right. I mean, at the time of the referendum, um, healthcare providers, uh, all the main medical representative bodies, uh, impressed upon the government that they felt this would be necessary here because what we've seen over years and what we've seen in other countries, at that time the government committed that they would introduce legislation. We have seen a long delay in bringing forward proposals. It, it is encouraging in, in this week, in light of the most recent, quite large demonstrations at Hollow Street, that Minister Harris has said that he is still committed to introducing legislation of this type. Uh, I suppose the question is, can this be done constitutionally with the the right balance? And what we've done is we've looked at the legislation and the case law from other jurisdictions, and I think what's particularly helpful is to look at the United Kingdom, because they are also party to the European Convention on Human Rights. So, broadly speaking, they have a similar legal set of standards that we have. And what has been found there is that... uh, The Court of Appeal in England and Wales has found that local safe zone legislation in London was found to be compliant with the convention. And what was important, I think, there is a distinction was drawn between protests which might cause shock or annoyance or disturbance, which should be tolerated in a liberal democracy and something that goes beyond that threshold to actually directly harassing people at a vulnerable point where they're trying to access a hospital or a doctor's surgery. And I think that that is a common sense distinction which people understand, that we have to tolerate people making offensive protests if they're doing it outside Leinster House, for example. But that doesn't mean we have to tolerate it when I am trying to visit my wife or my mother or my sister in hospital, or if I'm lying sick in a hospital and I have to tolerate this type of demonstration outside the window of that hospital.
5: Uh, And if we don't tolerate it, what do we do? I mean, if uh, there is a legally permissible way of introducing uh, laws that would prevent people from staging these type of of protests, what sort of sanctions should there be for those who uh, disregard those laws? Uh, Should they be arrested? Should they be prosecuted?
11: I I mean, I, I think that... If we have tightly tightly designed safe zone regulation, that it should be possible to administer that without recourse to criminal sanctions to any great extent. Um, We we published a report last year on the current protection of the right to protest in Irish law. And what we found is that generally our legislation is quite sound and the police have very strong policies and procedures in making sure people are allowed to express themselves and to do so in an appropriate and legal way. Uh, so I think that the guards certainly have the capacity to apply and administer legislation of this type properly and proportionately. Now if some people are absolutely persistent in breaking the law, well then the criminal law may need to follow. But We're talking here about a hardcore group that are not representative, even of those that hold very strongly anti-abortion or anti-choice views. Uh, And I think, you know, it was notable over the last couple of days that many of those that have led the pro-life anti-choice movement in Ireland distance themselves from these types of demonstrations. This is not representative of those that hold that particular political view in Ireland. This is a very hardcore group that are intent on upsetting and destroying. Stressing women and their families, and there is a case here for legislating against that.
5: OK, we'll leave it there for the moment, Liam. Thank you indeed for joining us here on the programme this morning. Liam Herrick is uh, Director of uh, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties.
9: Michael, Michael Reid on LMFM.
5: FM. Now, just uh, very briefly, a statement uh, that has arrived to us uh, by email from Alan Smith Cleaning Services. Uh, it's uh, signed by Alan Smith, I, I think, uh, and it says it's in relation to uh, the interview we did uh, on 5G SSI. Associates, employees and Alan Smith Cleaning Services would like to clarify the following as this statement puts it. They say the matter has nothing to do with Indover Ireland. Uh, well, I'm not sure that that's true because I think uh, that the five employees who turned up for work as usual uh, to carry out cleaning services in Indover Ireland would have thought that they were doing the cleaning in Indover Ireland only to be told that their jobs were gone and given to somebody else. Uh, and uh, they also say in this uh, that uh, they had made contact uh, in early December with uh, the employees and that they've reviewed the TUPE regulations and believe uh, that TUPE does not apply. All well and good, Alan Smith, thank you very much indeed for the statement, Uh, but if you'd like to make contact with us and explain what you mean uh, by what you did in terms of reviewing the TUPE regulations and why you believe that TUPE doesn't apply, I think a lot of people would be very interested in what you have to say and what explanation you have for it, especially those people who have found themselves out of work uh, and all of a sudden for that matter. Now let's uh, turn our uh, attention to a different matter altogether. As you've been hearing on LMFM's news uh, this morning, the Irish Independent is reporting that Irish water was warned five and a half years ago about uh, the problems that led to the country's biggest ever drinking water contamination scare. This is a story that Caroline O'Doherty, the environment correspondent for the Irish Independent, has on the paper's front page today and caroline is on the line with us now and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here on the program irish water took over the water treatment plant in Leakslip in 2014 and an assessment took place in july of that year is that right
9: that's right. There were a series of assessments that took place. Uh, they were called statement of need. So basically, they got uh, the whole plant, uh, and as they would have done all around the country at the various um, facilities that, that they took over, um, they got all, very, all aspects of the plant were looked at between 2014 and 2016, uh, because it's a very big facility, if you like, with very different moving parts to it. And the assessments came up with a fairly grim picture, a very grim picture, of how that facility and how that plant had been treated for years, really. really. And we have heard this before, that Irish water took over a very neglected water system. But I think the scale of it is is quite disturbing, really, um, because we found out that, um, in particular, what happened last uh, October and November uh, with, with people on the water supply in, in Meath and Dublin and Kildare, that was well warned about in advance. We, we'd previously heard that no. it was warned about in within the previous year. But this shows that in, in 2014... Um, The filter problem was well flagged and that the filters were deteriorating. They weren't doing the job and there was a risk of bacteria, impurities, particles, all the kind of stuff that's in raw water, like Mm. not being filtered out. And particularly of concern would be the likes of cryptosporidium and, say, E. coli. Mm. So it was all well flagged. So in other words, they need replacing. And the replacement process didn't start for four years. It started in July of 2018 and it's still ongoing because there are 15 filters and you can't shut the plant down to replace all the filters at once. So it's a very slow process. You can't shut the plant down Mm -hmm. because... Dublin, Kildare, Meath, whole area uses up pretty much every drop of water that Irish Water's plants produce so if you take one out of commission for any period of time you basically have water shortages And
5: these filters uh, were they the reason that 660,000 people were without water that uh, the cryptosporidium and the E. coli and so on was managing to get into the water system because those filters hadn't been replaced as recommended?
9: Yeah, they've just been in place for so long. They hadn't. They were worn out. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a plant in twenty four hour use. Things get worn out, Um, but the plant wasn't maintained for years. We found that, that there were other areas of the plant where machinery and systems weren't even serviced for maybe 20 years, even longer. Mm. So, basic, The basic maintenance of that plant was utterly ignored um, or neglected for long numbers of years before Irish Water took over. Um, and that's kind of surprising um, because, obviously, it's a, it, 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 in all the assessments, there have read a dozen different assessments here, and they all stress and they repeat this line that the Leakcliff Water Treatment Plant is of strategic national importance, the second largest treatment plant in the country and it serves this very important mm. region now. Not to say that the Greater Dublin area is more important than another region, but, you know, technically it is really and truly because it's where many, many, um, it's, uh, our capital and it's many, many serious major employers are all based. Um, so it, that's all been stressed. And even though Irish Water took over in 2014 and we've been through the recession and yeah. everything else, there was signs that this whole facility wasn't being properly cared for you know in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s when we did have money so a lot of questions to be asked I think about the the whole care of of, of a majorly important facility for for years Mm -hmm. before Irish Water came on the scene. Uh, And as you say there
5: were a number of assessments, Uh, the problem with the filters was one of the problems that was highlighted, Uh, there was a a cracking in the structure and uh, possibly some subsidence problems uh, and uh, there was a problem with asbestos uh, which could have led to fires there was problem with sludge presses uh, there was problems with the general control system and there was a long list of problems for that matter
9: very long these are quite technical assessments mm-hmm. but when you go go through them you're realizing that you know that it's, a, it's a the mechanics of this plant you have valves you have pumps you've filters, you've control panels within, within the control building and all of those were sort of absolutely creaking so you had IT systems that were no, no longer in use of so after 20 years the software was no longer being produced and it was hard to get it serviced and you had control panels uh, that they couldn't get spare parts for or you'd have to go to the end of the earth to get spare parts for. There was one issue where there was only one crew internationally who looked after repairs because something was being phased out and if it had gone wrong you could have waited weeks on end before anybody could come and fix it Mm. Um, you had what particularly scary one all the there's a huge amount of electronics in a plant that size and all the control panels had um automatic fire extinguishing systems within them. So if a fire broke out, they're supposed to activate and control the fire and contain it within a given area. They hadn't been serviced in 20 years. There was a major concern if anything happened. And electronics do get overloaded and exposed. If there had been a fire, they would have been wiped out. And again, the system would have been out of production. Massive problems for the entire region.
5: And all of that uh, will be of great interest, if not concern, if not annoyance to people who were without water or people who may have uh, fallen ill as a result of uh, drinking uh, water. Uh, at uh, the time, and all of that's terrible. It's very, very bad news, Caroline. But you want to give us the really bad news uh, because you raised the issue in your article this morning in the Irish Independent of water charges.
9: I do, and it's, it's only because I mean the, the reason is we, Irish Water took over. It was made, made very clear to them very quickly the scale of the problem that had to be uh, a, a tackled in getting this up to up to speed. Um, and you have to say, well, why didn't they do it? Well, because it was a whole list of things that had to be done and everything requires massive investment. They have, I must say, they've done quite a bit of work on leak Slip since these reports came out. Not all the issues highlighted have been rectified. And also they're dealing with a kind of a... And moving picture, if you like, because the demand is still growing, um, so to get the plant up to speed, things are kind of almost moving ahead of it, if you like, and they still have that problem that they're not getting enough water into the area to even to, to provide for future growth, so there's all those horrendous issues, and it does raise the question of again, how do we fund this? Um, and that's a question that everybody's kind of tucked away for a while, there's massive investment required, not just here but all around the country, um, and uh, you know, loads as we are to sort of bring it up again, but is, is you you have to think that at some stage, in the, in the not-too-distant future, that issue of funding of Irish water and the water services is going to have to come up again. And I did a story earlier this week um, about, um, the, the, we, we've obviously shelved uh, water charges, but we have agreed that there should be an excess use charge, so people who are using way above what is considered the normal uh, requirement for a household uh, would, would pay more. That, that legislation has been in since 2017. Those charges have not been brought in yet. One of the problems to, major problems is that people will argue, well, my household isn't metered, so how can you be absolutely sure how much extra or excess I'm using? That's one of the issues. There are some ways around that. The other issue is a lot of the excess usage would be because of leaks. And, so you can say, well, it's not my fault. What is leaking everywhere? I'm mm. not actually using it. And there's a huge problem with addressing leaks. There are tens of thousands of leaks on ordinary people's properties around the country, never mind the bigger mm-hmm. leaks that they are aware of when and we hear that you know an area is out with water
5: costly so there's all of that. We ha- of we haven't
9: yet. even introduced those charges okay. I just feel it's it's coming another debate oh, is going to rear its divisive yeah. head again and happy d- not
5: happy future. new year to you as well <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much Caroline uh, and thanks for joining us uh, this morning Caroline O'Doherty Environment Correspondent with uh, the Irish Independent brings our programme to its conclusion today our time is out God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye
2: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance.